0: listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, October 6th. It is once again Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Get thee to cybersecurity.ucsd.edu for a full schedule of events and ways to get involved. I can tell you there are events and opportunities put on by UC San Diego and UC Office of the President happening on a weekly basis. Dear listener, I call upon thee to do your part and hashtag beCybersmart. If everyone does their part by implementing stronger security practices, raising community awareness, and training coworkers, our interconnected world will be safer and more resilient for everyone. So again. Visit cybersecurity.ucsd.edu for a rundown of all the opportunities. This week's theme is Be Cyber Smart, Get Familiar with the Cyber Basics. And as if on cue, today's guest happens to be none other than our own Chief Information Security Officer, Mike Korn.
1: This is Mark Herzberger, Communications Manager in IT Services. Today, I'm joined by Mike Korn, our Chief Information Security Officer. Mike, welcome back to the pod. How are you? I'm just fine, Mark. It's good to see you. How is early fall treating you in the corn household? Uh, it's going terrific.
2: As it cools down, my dogs enjoy it more because they're both old and they kind of wilt when you walk them in the sun. <laughs>
1: Very good. Uh, Playful banter aside, uh, let's start with with some questions that are, I'm sure, on everybody's mind. Why did you make me change my password?
2: Really, this came down to in response to certain data breaches that have been going around the UC. Uh, Regulators expect us to do something like this after a major incident. It's unfortunate because I don't think it helps as much as it may hurt. The real challenge is when you make people change their password, uh, especially if you do it frequently. Uh, they end up uh, choosing weak passwords. You're burdening them. And uh, this is not just an opinion. This has been studied pretty extensively. There is an advantage that you do find people, there are corners of the campus where people have been allowed to use weak passwords or too short passwords. And so we took this as an opportunity to not only um, you know, do that sort of password hygiene, make everyone clean their password, but we also uh, lengthen the minimum password length Um, It was already longer in many places, but there were still, by default, for most users, it was only seven characters. So now it's 12 characters. We also used this as an opportunity to uh, make some major changes to the password homepage. So we got rid of some security problems it had. We refreshed the uh, user experience, look and feel. We put everything behind Duo so that even if you don't know your password and you've forgotten your password, you can go in and change it pretty easily because you'll get a do push to verify your identity. And then the last piece is that we uh, implemented across the entire Active Directory, something that tests your password when you're trying to set it. And it examines if that password is known to be weak, exists on the dark web, or has been part of a breach in the past. And that sounds like a pretty minor thing, but we're finding roughly 10% of password Attempt changes are being stopped because people are using poor passwords. So uh, basically, we're just cleaning up the whole environment through this exercise.
1: How do hackers exploit a compromised AD password?
2: Well, it's pretty straightforward. They try to log in as you. And we see attempts like this all the time. The big change, of course, that took place recently was putting multi-factor authentication, not just in front of all the applications through SSO or ADFS, but we put it in front of email clients. Mm -hmm. So on your phone, on your Outlook account, this is huge. And honestly, it has completely eliminated an entire set of warnings we get from Google and Microsoft about suspicious behavior because uh, Duo is stopping those, uh, you know, access to those accounts. And uh, it's been really effective.
1: Zoom out even farther, who is trying to hack into UC San Diego and why are they doing it?
2: What's interesting about that question is, you know, I've been doing this about 20 years. And when I got into security, when I was first a CISO, most of the stuff we saw on campus was kind of internet noise. It were scripts being run, doorknob rattling, we call it, just checking to see if something was vulnerable. There was a lot of attempts to use unsecured storage for music sharing. Remember when stealing music was the big thing? (laughs) Or honestly, storing pornography was a really big deal as well. And we saw very little attacks that I would say were sophisticated or state-sponsored. And most of those were aimed at your supercomputing centers. These days, everything we see that is really sophisticated is state-sponsored or coming out of the tactics that state sponsors are using. So both the Chinese and the Russians, are um, they they engage in not just hacking themselves, but they sponsor organizations, criminal organizations, uh, to do hacking on their behalf. And that means these criminal organizations have become incredibly sophisticated to the point where I've heard cases where they have taken over, say, a a VPN appliance, Mm -hmm. and the manufacturer says, this isn't possible. They don't understand quite how they're doing it. So I I don't want to be melodramatic, but the reality is we are facing attacks every day by the Chinese government, the Russian government, the North Koreans, um, and criminal organizations that are equally sophisticated and well-funded.
1: Speaking directly to faculty, researchers, and, and PIs right now, what can they do to protect their labs and research environments from cyber threats?
2: I would say we've got two answers for them. Um, The most simple answer is we have an entire program called Cybersecurity Certification for Research, which we created specifically for the PIs, the researchers, the people running labs. And that entire program is designed to be as lightweight as possible. So the way many schools have approached the research mission is they bring a team of assessors They go to a lab, they turn it over, they document everything, and that's great. That's very thorough. But what you find is that those schools are hiring 10, 12 people to do this, and they're doing 10 labs a year. It's just too heavyweight. So our goal with that program, the CCR program, is to get a baseline set of practices into all the labs and do it in a way that's as minimally disruptive to the faculty as possible. The goal here is not just to get our software installed, to get contact information so we can bring our tools to bear on their lab, but also to start introducing security into these labs in a way that isn't too painful Mm -hmm. and too disruptive. Because if we do that, we put a bad taste in the mouth. So the, the that was one thing you can do, and it's very simple. And all anyone has to do is go to assure.ucsd.edu, and they can read about it. There's all the information there. But I think the other message I have for faculty is that it's not 1984 anymore. We secure research cyber infrastructure, and we manage research infrastructure the same way we've done it for 40 years, and that's great. We are a research powerhouse, obviously, but the world has changed. When you're dealing with hackers that are so sophisticated, even the national security apparatus of the U.S. isn't sure they can detect it, then we do have to rethink how we're doing things in the research environment. Because we know they're after not just defense-related information, they're after our intellectual property uh, they're interested in disrupting our operations. Uh, it's a new world, and the faculty research community is going to have to adapt to that. I'm afraid um, it's going to be challenging for everybody.
1: I would surmise, you know, there's some high value research they would want to get their hands on, whether it's DOD or COVID research. But can you expand a bit, too, on the idea that every staff or every faculty out there can be a source of entry and that the hacker can sort of break in one spot and hopscotch elsewhere or, or, or get to some high value places? So, yeah, let us know a little bit more about that and what you, you just said. It. I don't have anything else to say.
2: No, it, it's true. <laughs> and it's actually a, a challenge for us because, you know, traditionally we view the campus or any environment you're trying to secure through a lens of risk. And you say, well, what's the risky areas? It's like you say, the COVID research is a hot topic these days, or I should say a hot target. You know, we do have do a lot of DOD work, but you're absolutely right. What they're looking for typically when they come into the campus environment, they don't go, oh, Mark's computer is where all the COVID work is, let's attack it. They go, let me find anything that's vulnerable. That could be the English professor who's studying Shakespeare sonnets his or her laptop. Once they're in the environment, whether it's correct or not, we tend to treat the machine as more trustworthy Mm
0: -hmm.
2: than anything out on the internet. And so that opens the door to other resources. And so we see this very clearly in attacks on campus. They come in anywhere they can, the business school, SDSC, health, um, ITS, and they pivot into the environment and start looking around. What this really goes to, though, is sort of what I think is going to be the future for us for the next few years in security in a big way. When the internet began, basically, all we really cared about was connectivity, making sure machines could talk to one another as quickly and fast as possible. And security, when it became necessary, was layered on top of that. So the model was trust everyone and fix it later. And that model simply doesn't work anymore. There is no notion that the campus is a more trustworthy environment than your home. So the uh, the term of art these days is called zero trust. And we're really looking hard at leaning into zero trust aggressively at UCSD. Um, zero trust is probably best explained by looking at, the, at COVID and the pandemic metaphors. So when you come to campus, just to get on campus. You have to do a screening. I don't have a temperature, I don't have symptoms. We'll let you on campus. When to go into a building, you gotta be vaccinated. That's terrific. But now even in a building, if you're gonna meet with other people, you gotta wear a mask. So you've got these layers of protection, none of which are perfect, but in aggregate allow us to continue. Zero Trust works the exact same way. Before a machine is allowed to join the network, it's interrogated. Have I seen you before? Do I know who you are? Next, we look and say, based on who the user is, do I know they have the right software installed? Do they have all the proper security software installed? And then when you stack those up, you say, okay, now I can make decisions. I know that you're Mark. I've seen your computer. It's vaccinated. But now I'm going to restrict what you can do to only the things you in your role in place at the university. allowed to do it. So that may mean that, Mark, your computer can't even have access to applications, Mm -hmm. not even to attempt to log in or even to touch on the network that you're not authorized to use. Uh, You can't go to printers that aren't the ones authorized for you to use. And so Zero Trust borrows this whole medical metaphor, Mm -hmm. and um, it really turns the way we've done computing and networking upside down from the last 40 years.
1: What are some myths or misconceptions about cybersecurity that you've heard from staff, from from faculty, you know, that you'd like to correct the record on?
2: I think there's a whole slew and there's a a spectrum of them. One of the ones that I wanna get at very quickly, I often hear talk in the community of, um, we need to punish people that fall for phishing. And there are organizations that do this. You fall for a fish and get compromised n times and you get laid off. I think that's a blame the victim Hmm. mentality. You know, when you look at phishing, it's incredibly sophisticated these days and it's ubiquitous. And frankly, I was just having a conversation with the folks at OP about half the messages we get from OP or third party vendors sure look like phishing messages. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to stop blaming the victims for one thing. Other myths are that security is something you do in addition to your job. And this is a harder one. If you're maintaining a computer, you need to maintain it securely or you're not doing your job. It's not a question of, I maintain this computer, oh, and now I'll go apply the antivirus or, oh, I'll go turn on the firewall. No, you have to understand the role of that machine, it really requires a much larger and organic view of uh, your position. And I think this goes for all of us. When you send a message to somebody with sensitive data in it, are you going, oh, maybe I should encrypt that? Or are you thinking, what's the best way to uh, share information securely? So there's just a whole slew of these kinds of practices I think we need to uh, unwind in people's minds.
1: My favorite is that Macs don't need antivirus software. True or or false?
2: False. Absolutely false. And it's false for multiple reasons. First, we are seeing more and more malware targeting Macs. But let's take viruses that are passed along on email that slip through all of other controls we have. If my Mac doesn't have any protections against Windows viruses, then I'm just as likely to transmit that. To somebody else. So again, these, these medical metaphors of infection and transmission are really valuable in this
1: context. Kind of like the asymptomatic s- spread idea. Oh, interesting. Okay. Exactly. Uh, let's close it down one more, uh, fairly close to home for those of us in IT services. What is the idea of patching and what do faculty and system administrators and those of us in IT need to know and do about it?
2: Patching was the number one problem in security when I started. And when I retire, it will be the number one problem in security. Patching it, for those that don't realize it, means that, that software being written by human has flaws. And these flaws are exploited by hackers to take over a machine, increase their privileges on a machine, uh, steal data, things like that. The short answer is, is that as a result, vendors are constantly releasing patches, software updates, bug fixes. And it's really critical these are applied. At any given point in time, there's probably three-quarter of a million vulnerabilities across machines on campus. I'm probably not counting very hard either. So, patching is sort of step one on machine security. Now, the good news is Microsoft and Apple, for an end user, has made this very easy. Your machine pops up. It says, do you want to apply updates? The answer is yes. The answer is always yes. And it's never that bad. And the, you'll always hear stories, oh, and I applied a patch, it broke everything. That's apocryphal. It almost never happens. Anymore. Another myth, shall we say. It's, it's, it's another myth. Now, if you're a systems manager and you're running very complex applications on a system, you need to look carefully about what needs to be patched. But I would put in everyone's mind the OP data breach where all your data was taken. The difference between a, the delta in time between the patch was released and when the attack took place, was I believe on the order of six days. So if you think we're living in a world where once a month Microsoft releases patches and you go, okay, that's good enough, you're living in 1984 and you're gonna get hacked. And especially for those of us in IT, we control access and have access to a lot of sensitive data. So if you're angry that your data was released by OP and you're not patching aggressively, you don't have any right to be angry. You're part of the problem. So, you know, the short answer is this is a very simple thing, especially for end users. We just have to step up and take advantage of it, of the ease in which it's become
1: these days. All right, Mike, we appreciate the time. Any last messages you want to get out before we close up?
2: No, I don't think so. I appreciate the opportunity, Mark.
1: Always happy to talk with you. Indeed. All right, over and out for now. Thank you, Mike.
0: Thanks. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily.